This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. We're going to be doing our reading uh, today out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 8. And this is going to be our sermon text. We're going to go right through down to verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men, that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly or attire, but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word at all times. And Lord, we submit ourselves to it. And Lord, we ask that today you would help us to see all truths that you would have us know and be revealed and help us to submit to them. In your name we pray. Amen. It's, uh, it's texts like this that make me particularly thankful for things like expositional preaching. Uh, if you don't know what expositional preaching is, it just means that we take a particular book of the Bible and we systematically preach through the Bible. And we do it genre by genre, book by book, passage by passage. Because I, I, I know, some of you might think that I'm a little bit hot-headed at times, um, a little bit controversial, I'm okay with controversy, but believe it or not, I'm not always brave. And I might not always uh, be the first person to thrust myself into a text like this. And it's quite a text. Uh, no idea is perhaps more controversial in today's age than that there is a right way for men and women to live out God's destiny in the way in which he has designed it. But then again... Is there a more controversial idea in general that you are not meant to be the Lord of your own life? You're not. I'm sorry if you've just walked in here today and you found that out to be a shock, but you have a king. And you have always had a king. Even if you're not a Christian, you have a single king. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. This is our, our, our Lord and Savior. This is Yahweh. He is the one who created all things, and he is the one who ordered all things, and all things are still in his sovereign control, and he is working them out bit by bit in the way in which he has designed them. Now, sin has come in and messed things up, but that's not something that was outside of the sovereign scope of God. He saw that coming. He's not shocked. He wasn't surprised. It wasn't that he woke up one morning and went, what has humanity done? They have ruined everything. That's not our God. That's not the God that you see in the Bible. And yet, we, if we are honest, 
do not live the way in which God designed humanity to operate. We don't. If we're left to our own devices, we will want to be the lords of our own lives. And this is exactly the thing that led humanity into sin. Rather than simply honouring the fact that the king, the God, the sovereign had spoken and, and reasoning ourselves after his own thoughts, which is what we're supposed to do, humanity began to say, well, maybe I know a little bit better. And so, as controversial as it is, we are not meant to be the lords of our lives. We are meant to be in submission to God. And scripture is clear, though, that God's design leads to human flourishing. And leaving it out, leaving God's design and the way in which he is destined and controlling and, and, and ordered things, it always leads to failure and destruction and sin. Not only of ourselves, but also our environment. So when we start to say, well, some of these ideas in scripture seem a little bit antiquated. Uh, perhaps maybe um, Paul was a bit of a patriarch and well we're not we don't live in a patriarchal society anymore so uh, these ideas might be a little bit outdated i don't think we can do that i think rather our job is to ask ourselves why why has god decided that he would order things in the particular way in which he has decided that he was going to do it we are to wrestle with the text and do our best to understand it and then, as Christians, to submit ourselves to it, no matter how difficult. That's not to say that this text is not challenging, though. We're going to get to a text that perhaps um, is one of the most difficult texts to interpret in all of Scripture. And that is the idea that Paul puts forward that women are saved or delivered through childbearing. It's not as shocking when we get there. It won't be as shocking as you think. But I think it's interesting that, first of all, he starts with the idea of men. He says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, it seems like in this day and age that uh, lifting up hands as you pray was one of the postures of prayer. And it's a good, it's a good posture. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a posture of submission. It's, it's basically saying, I, uh, there's nothing, I, don't, I don't have anything in my hands, I'm no threat to anybody. That's why when you, somebody's holding a gun to you, they say, put your hands up. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a posture of submission. And lifting up holy hands to God is a posture of submission before him. But I don't think that Paul's point is that every single time we should pray, we should lift up hands. I don't think that's his point. But rather you get the idea of the posture. This is what he wants. And this is actually what he starts this whole section with. Remember, in the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about, I urge that supplication, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And so he picks up this point again. He wants his church to be a praying church. He wants men to be praying men. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. Maybe this is one of my faults. But um, I tend to find that I'm pretty self-sufficient. I'm a pretty self-sufficient guy. I can work it out. I can, just give me enough time. I'll reason it through. Um, and, I, and I'm also the kind of person that if I can't work it out, I get hung up on it until I do. Um, ask our friend John here. The other day he was trying to explain to me a math principle about greater than. Yeah. You, yeah. 
And, and as I'm leaning, I just couldn't move on. I'm like, what do you mean? No, I, st- I can see the symbol. It's greater than... And I just got hung up until teacher John over there got me to a point where I understood what he was saying. I think this is a very male tendency. Men tend to want to be self-sufficient. We tend to want to have to work things out. We tend to be the kinds of people who will perhaps respond then when there's a difficulty within the church in a way that we shouldn't, and that's with anger and with quarrelling. Paul's like, that's, that's, not, that's not the Christian way. That's not the Christian response. The Christian response for men is, is if there's a problem, if there's a particular issue, your response should be prayer, not anger, not quarrelling, you should be, if pe- when people look at your life, when people look at the way in which you worship, the thing, the quintessential thing that should stand out about men is that they are men dedicated to the craft of prayer. And I think all of us have to admit that we can do better with that. Uh, we've never arrived and we will not ever arrive. Prayer is one of those things that perfection always eludes us. But perfection's not the point. The point of prayer is a humble reliance upon God. That's why the submission. What else can we do but throw up empty hands before God and say, help me, help us. That's what's to mark Christian men. Prayerfulness, worship, humility, dependence upon God, not contention, not anger, not quarrelsomeness. Very, very different attitudes. I'm going to hand this on to God and I'm going to allow him to deal with it. So I think this is one of the first places. I think, believe it or not, I think Paul's being a little bit stereotypical here. It's not something that's very politically correct in our day and age, but I think what he does is he, he puts his finger on a particular problem and he says, instead of that, this. He starts with men. Then he moves to women. He says, likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or golds or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. So basically Paul is saying that, that women, Christian women, should dress in a way that's fitting for a Christian woman to dress with modesty and she shouldn't worry about whether or not she's keeping up with the latest fashions, but that she should dress herself with good works. That's what stands out. That's what people are to notice about you. Not to notice your attire, but to notice your good works. Now, why? Why would Paul have to say this? Well, it seems like in this particular day, there are coins that have come out from this particular era. And on that era, you see women, and they're starting to dress in different ways. Uh, They're braiding their hair. They're wearing costly attire. Uh, They're dressing in a way that's perhaps a little bit more provocative. We can see this. And for Paul, he's like, that. just don't, don't bring that into the church. That's not, like, you're not supposed to draw attention to yourself in that way. That's not how you draw attention to yourselves. I think, perhaps, in our modern day, Paul might say, don't try to keep up with the Hollywood fashions. 
Don't worry about what women are wearing in the magazines. Don't worry about those particular things dressed in a way that's modest. Now, modesty is one of those things that's also a, a, a hot-button topic. Can you talk about that today? Can you walk into a place and say, well, that's not very modest? Because the idea is, is that um, th there's this common thought that, well, if, if, uh, if a woman's not, not dressing modestly and men are, are lusting after that woman, then, then that woman has sinned. But I don't think that's how it is as well. The sin of a man belongs to a man. Right? That's a man's sin. A man has to control that. He is responsible for his own sin. What the problem for Paul here is, is attracting attention to yourself in a way that's not God-honoring. Can you dress in a way that's God-honoring? Can you hold yourself in a way that's God-honoring? Can your neighbours, can your friends, can those people who are out and about in the world, can they look upon you and say, the thing that's different about her, the thing that really stands out about her, is the way in which she worships her God. You see how both, come, both of those things, both for, for men and for women, for Paul, that's the, that's the ultimate thing. Worship of God. Does that stand out in your life? Can people see that? Can people see those sorts of things within your life? He goes on and says in verse 11, let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, we subscribe here as a church. Uh, you'll find this in bits and pieces through our, through our statements of faith. I subscribe to a particular idea of complementarianism. What complementarianism is, is that men and women have been created by God in the image of God, bearing all of the dignity and value of being made in the image of God, and are therefore equal in their glory, but they're different. That's shocking today. Men and women are equal in every single way, but different. Men have been, by God, created to do certain things, and women have been created by God to do certain things. And I don't think that that's a matter of talent, intelligence, strength, courage, or any of those virtues. I know plenty of women that are pretty capable of teaching the Bible pretty well. But... Within the household of God, which is who Paul is addressing, that's not their place. That's not the role of women within our church. Now, this is controversial. There are some who think, uh, let's, let, we put this in the best possible frame, there are some that think that, that what's going on in Ephesus is that there is a particular deity who is female and therefore there is an overstepping of the mark where women are starting to overthrow the men in the church. And so in order for that to, to be corrected, Paul simply writes to this, this one church to, uh, to turn it on its head and say, well, look, the, the women, you've gone too far, so now we're going to correct it and we're going to bring it in the other way. And, uh, and, and therefore, for this particular church, it's, it's fine. 
That, you know, Paul's just bringing a correction here. But the thing is, is that this sort of thing comes up in other churches. It comes up in 1 Corinthians 14 as well. Paul talks about the fact that, uh, that women should remain quiet. Now, he doesn't mean you can't make noise. That's not what he's saying. He's not like, you sit in the corner, don't want to hear a squeak out of you. What he's saying is don't teach. In this particular setting, this is the God-given responsibility of men. Not because men are better, smarter, tougher, more courageous, but rather it's simply the way in which God has ordained it. This is what I mean. It's very easy at times for us to submit to all kinds of things, but when it starts to clash with our particular culture and our particular age and start to feel outdated, other things begin to happen. In fact, what people hear sometimes when they hear people talking like this is something that's unloving. Well, you guys, you just don't love women like you should. That's not it at all, and that's not Paul's point either. Remember, Paul's goal is for the church to flourish. That's his goal. His goal is for humanity to flourish. He wants them to flourish. And so if God has, if he's ordered things in a particular way, and God's way is that which leads to human flourishing, even if it seems difficult, we do well to pay attention to it. And so I think complementarianism is a really good thing. I think it's good for families... I think it's good for the church. I think it's good for society. Now, the other thing that I don't think that Paul is saying here, and I don't want you to hear me say this as well, so I want to I just say what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that women should be barefoot and pregnant and strapped to the kitchen. We're not talking about the 1950s quintessential housewife. If you read what the Bible actually has to say about the role of women within the world and the life, to see that that's not, like the, the 1950s woman is not what we see. Rather, within, within Scripture, we always see, we see one of two things particularly about both men and women. Both men, both husbands and wives, have a family orientation in the way in which they conduct themselves. The reality is, is that every single profession that exists in the world today as it is ordained by God, is there to support the greatest profession of all. And that is the raising of children. And so men, in the ordering of God, in the way in which he has designed things, in the way in which he wants things to happen, men, in the orientation towards their families, the smallest unit of society, are to spend and be spent in trying to provide for their families. To be there, to love, to cherish, to care, to, to give of themselves as Christ gave for his church. And women throughout scripture have also been industrious. In Proverbs 31, no matter, if you, even if you take it as lady wisdom, uh, we're given the idea of, a, of the ideal wife. And she's industrious. She's she's. She's caring for her family and she's going out and she's buying a field and she's sewing clothes and she's going out and selling them in the market and she's loving on her children and caring for her husband. 
That's not the 1950s quintessential housewife. But she, her, her goal and her orientation is towards her family. And, and I think we've gotten careers wrong, therefore. I think that, we, that what we've done is, is we've elevated our job to a place where it becomes the defining factor of who we are. And all of a sudden, what we've done is, is we've made it so that if a woman is asked to submit to her husband, it's servitude, but if she's asked to submit to her boss, it's empowerment. We've got it wrong. Husbands and wives are empowered in the raising of their children, in the, in the raising of other children. You've got to stop for a second right now and just think. The guy who's the talking head up here right now has never had children. Right? So how do we live this out? Well, we live this out in the care of other children and other families, being involved in our church, making sure that we are there to care and to serve in a way that we can. And so I'm not saying, again, that I want to see the women in this church in servitude, never using their gifts, just stuck in the kitchen and cow-towering, or cow-towering to their husbands. That's not what this teaches. Men and women, equal in all and every way. Maybe it's possible that a wife will be more intelligent than a husband, more gifted, a better communicator. Perhaps it's possible that there are women in this church, and I would not be surprised, that would be better teachers than me, better teachers than the elders in this church. But it's not the way that God has destined it, and we have to trust that his ways are better than ours. I think it's interesting the, when Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do not, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but rather she should remain quiet. His reasoning is interesting. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's first reasoning. And then the other is, and Adam was not deceived, but woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's his reasoning. So this is why, for me, I, I don't necessarily think that it works to say, well, Paul's got a very narrow set of, of, of people in mind. Because what does he do? He ties it back to God's ordering in creation. The reason why women shouldn't teach and have exercise of authority over man is because Adam was created first and woman was deceived in the garden. That's his thinking. That's his reasoning. And so that's a pretty universal truth. It's something that stood for all of this time. Why did God not create Eve first? It's his wisdom. But I also think that this reasoning makes sense of the next text. Now, verse 15 is probably... Uh, if, you, if you go and read the literature... This is one of the texts where there could be whole books written upon because there is so much debate here. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. The thing that's interesting is um, this word, there is no she in it. Uh, it's, it's a single word. And the single word is best translated, uh, perhaps she, because it's only women who give birth. Shocking. <laughs> she will be saved. 
or she will be delivered. One verb holds all of that within it. And it's future. It's something that's going to happen in the future. This is something that's interesting for us. Something that's going to happen in the future. It's not the beginning of salvation. It's not like, uh, in order for a woman to be saved eternally, she has to give birth to something, a person. That's not what's being said. It's, it's, it's out there. And, and we're actually, I've actually entitled this sermon A Saving Lifestyle. The idea is, is that um, in the future, when we stand before God, it'll ultimately be the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us, the grace of God, the fact that he rose again from the dead. That's what justifies us. But that's not the particular idea of salvation that Paul has in mind. He's talking about the future. And, and, but, but this event that happens in salvation changes a person. And, and, and there's particular ways that we live out that salvation. You're not, you're not, just, you're not just saved and waiting for the benefits of that. Rather, you're saved and you're getting some of the benefit of that. Uh, when, when you're saved, ultimately, you will not sin. There won't be any issues like that. You will, you will have a great relationship with God. But now, you get some of the benefit of that. You get a particular desire to live in a way that's consistent with the salvation that you've received. And so it's future. It's passive. It's something that's happened to the person. It's not, it's not their doing. This is what it means for it to be passive. It's something that's done to you. But I think the antecedent, which just simply means the person who's just been referred to before it, or the thing that's just been referred to before it, is interesting. Who's the woman? Eve. Eve is the person who's referred to before it. And so when I think it says, yet she will be saved through childbearing, I think it's talking about Eve. There are some that want to say, no, no, it's, it's not talking about Eve, it's talking about women in general, and, and women in general are saved through, uh, in, in the particular way that Paul's talking about, they are, they, are, they are sanctified and they are saved by living out the God-ordained way that God has had, had an idea for them, his design. That God is working out their salvation in the here and now that will end sometime in the future by living the lifestyle that God has has, has designed for them. But I think this is talking about Eve. I think it's... It, it, so, he, so he starts talking about the fact that, that women should submit. Now, let's think about this. Women should submit to men. Men's, women's responsibility is not to teach or take authority over a man. Uh, and so, um, because, because Eve, Adam was created first, that's the created order, and, 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 and Eve failed. She was the one who was deceived. That's the idea. So what then's the place for women? Uh, if, it's, if it's men's job, if it's our job to lead the church and lead the household, does that mean that women have no role in salvation? I think Paul's mind goes straight back to Eve. Despite everything that he says about Eve, he's like, no, no, no. The promise of salvation doesn't come to Adam. The promise of salvation at the moment that humanity falls comes to Eve. Let's have a look at Genesis 
We've looked at this text a lot of times. Talking to the snake, the serpent, the Satan of old, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the promise. So when, when Eve is able to point at the snake and say, that snake, that serpent over here, he deceived me, it deceived me. God comes straight to the serpent and he puts a curse on him. He says, you're going to crawl on the ground. No legs for you, you get to eat dust for the rest of your days. And here's what's going to happen. There's going to be offspring that are going to come through Eve and ultimately that offspring, he, the singular, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Ask yourself this question, which is more serious, a head wound or a foot wound? Other translations will say crush your head. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. The idea is that ultimately there's going to be someone who comes through Eve who will bring victory over the deceiver. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point is that ultimately it's not that women do not have a place in salvation. Women have the greatest place in salvation because through Eve the Saviour comes. Through her lineage. She's the one to whom the promise is given. The text make a little bit more sense. I, I hope so. I hope, sorry, that, I hope that Paul's point shines through that, that, that women ultimately express their role in the salvation and the building of the church like Eve did. Because then he ties it back to everybody. He says, so he starts with the singular, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. So he starts with Eve. He picks a particular quintessential thing. He's like, childbearing. That's the summary of what women do. And they get to play a part, perhaps even the greatest part. All of us have a role. I think it's also helpful for us to think about what marriage is supposed to be. The role of men and women in marriage. And the picture that's there. Now, after Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, tells women to submit to their own husbands, and husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he says this. He says in verse 31, he says, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's the picture of the gospel. In marriage, we get a picture of the gospel. The picture is this, that, that, that the husband is supposed to be the quintessential example of who Christ is the one who will love and cherish and give of himself for his wife. And the wife 
is supposed to represent the church. And the church is there to submit itself to Christ. Now, is the church a small thing? No, not by any means. The church is perhaps the greatest human institution. Yes, it's instituted by Christ, but it's made up of humans. That's what I mean. It's the greatest human institution that the world has ever seen. It's, it's where God is working out his kingdom now. As the church grows, God's kingdom grows. And yet, in all of its grandeur, the church, its responsibility is to submit to Christ. And when husband and wife are living in the way in which they are supposed to, it's no small thing. Rather, it's a picture of the gospel. It's supposed to demonstrate what it is that Christ has done for his church and what the church is doing in response. And so when we start to try in our own wisdom, in our own strength, to turn this on its head in order to live out our lives in a way that's more perhaps socially uh, conditioned, we flip the picture of the gospel on its head. And that's what we want to live our lives out doing. We want to live our lives out displaying, speaking, showing, giving the gospel to the world. And so all of this, we see men not to respond anger, quarrelsome. Don't be, the, don't be the contentious type. Don't be the one that's always butting heads. Rather, be humble. Be the kind of guy that people can tell that you worship Christ because you take things to him. That you're the prayerful type. You're the worshipful type. You're the one who people know that you love Jesus because you don't get caught up in the quarrels and the controversies of this world. But rather, you are God's man. And women, let your good works, let them be the thing that people notice. Let them see that they know that primarily you are a worshipper of Jesus Christ because of, not because of what you wear, not because you're the one who's gunning for a particular place and position. Let them see that you are a worshipper of Christ because they can see your good works before men. They can see that you love and value Jesus supremely because of the way in which you give your life up for him. Let that be the thing that shines forth. In this, for both men and women, we see what it is to have a saving lifestyle. A, a lifestyle that shows that ultimately you have been redeemed by God and that when you look back on the course of your life, you will be able to say, you know what? I know that God was the one who brought me through to here. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for all of these truths and all of your love. And Lord, we pray that you would help us and give us the strength by the Spirit to live it out. All for your name and for the glory of Christ. Amen.